Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we compare Mormon and creedal Christian thought. This is an idea I've had for a while. What teachings of Jesus could no LDS truly believe? When I say that, I mean, apart from any sort of word games that um, are so typical in our attempts to get past the worldview differences that inform the words we use, even if they happen to be the same words. And um, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll get two or three or whatever. No, I have a long list. In fact, truly, I would say that biblically understood, assuming the worldview of the Old Testament, there's not a single teaching of Jesus um, in its rootedness to a theological whole that any LDS can believe. So there's that. But I figured I'd pick some examples that, at least to me, seem particularly good and good places to go and land, to push, to wrestle, to engage um, between these two camps. And so I picked 10. I picked 10 topics. And uh, let me give you the list. Number one, the most important commandment, the Shema, monotheism at least. Two, God is spirit, spirit properly understood. Three, scripture is God's word, and by God's word we mean God's word. And a corollary, of course, is trusting God's word. Four, Christ is temple, Christ as temple. Five, who is man? And who is Christ's family? Six, what is marriage? (laughs) That's a pretty good one. Uh, No marriage in heaven. Seven, salvation. Really, election, justification, uh, even the gospel. Um, I think that's, of course, on the list. Eight, the church. And really, with the emphasis being, did Jesus fail? Uh, Did he predict um, a great apostasy, or um, did somehow the agency of man thwart the purposes of Jesus uh, in, in what he said about the church and the coming of the kingdom? Nine, hell. And ten, sincerity is not enough. Ten is sincerity is not enough. So let's go one by one through these. I have these basic texts. The outline I have is to land on a teaching of Jesus and then maybe show some parallels elsewhere in the New Testament with some comments of my own as well as some basic commentators who I will mention um, who might have some, some comments I think help illuminate the text in the meaning of the text. So, um, and I lo- you'll notice I do this this quite a few times, is you, you know when we talk to LDS, when Christians talk to LDS, they love to pit Paul against James, or maybe Paul against Paul. Uh, I've heard uh, LDS say what, what Paul says, faith without works is dead, or whatever. Um, which, I, of course, I do think Paul would agree with that. But um, I will try to also show Paul and James on these subjects to anticipate that objection as well. Okay. Number one, 
What is the most important commandment? The most important commandment. Um, Jesus has asked this explicitly in Mark 12, right? And this one is so, once again, for, for people who assume monotheism, who were raised with the assumption of only one God, this can just seem so almost milk toast. But, of course, if you're here, you know it is not. You know that it is not. So let's read this passage. Mark 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment? We know our LDS love to talk about following the commandments, obeying the commandments. Well, here's Jesus. Here is Jesus. It's supposedly is in their name of the church or whatever. Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord or God, the Lord is one. That, that word for one, it does not mean first. It's, it's not that type of number. It's, um, it's, there's a difference between ordinal and cardinal numbers. It's one. One, and you shall love the Lord your God. And notice, that one is the Lord your God. So there's no distinction here between God, Elohim, Lord, Jehovah. You shall love the Lord your God, the, the one God, right? With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And notice the scribe. How he responds, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. God is one. And there is no other beside him, Isaiah. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he saw the connection. He saw the essential equivalent that the first commandment is with the Shema, the foundational prayer and creed of Israel, what does he say? You are not far from the kingdom of God. So what if someone doesn't see? What if someone disallows? What if someone confesses multiple gods? What if someone's foundational restoration prophet interprets Genesis 1-1 as meaning the multiple gods and the multiple councils of gods, plural, 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 and that you can become one? Um, what do you think Jesus would say? If affirming these makes you not far, disaffirming these might mean what? Now, what's interesting is if you continue this, right, let's look at James. And remember the first verse of James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the invoking of the one God. And... Uh, and that, of course, is God and Lord Jesus Christ. He states, right, he states that you believe God is one. Remember in this passage in, in chapter 2 where he is talking about faith and works. He says, you believe God is one. You do well. It is good to believe God is one. There's the Shema. Even the demons believe or believe this and shudder. Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
Uh-oh. And it is interesting um, that in James, in James, he uses the word Lord. And who is the Lord of the Old Testament? Who is the Lord? It is the one God, right? He, James uses Lord for Jesus, right, four times. One, one, two, one, five, seven through eight. In fact, I love this one in um, 2.1. My brothers and sisters, my siblings, right? Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Glory. And, right, Yahweh says in the Old Testament, I share my glory with no other. He also, James also uses Lord for God, even God the Father specifically. You can see that in 3.9. So it's almost like there's one God, right? Three persons. All right, in James, one God, two persons, right? There's a Christological monotheism here. One God and one Lord in Christ, right, shares in this divine identity, you might say. Now, is that just James? No, no, no. I mean, keep in mind how early James is. He even says, uh, refers to the church as the synagogue, right, in James. This is a very early text. Uh, no, no, we have it in Paul, right? What does Paul say? Romans 3, 28 through 30. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. God is one. There's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Wow. So Paul is also believes in the Old Testament, also believes in the Shema, right? How, or how about, how about this at 1 Corinthians 8? What does he say? There is no God but one. Wow. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods or many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, and notice right into creation, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Right? And this is, this is incredible. Um, if you see that, oh, that is the Shema. And this isn't debated. He can just cite this. He, I mean, there's a lot of debate in Paul's epistles over the relationship of law, gospel, how to hold things together um, biblically, uh, different customs going forward. No, no, no. He can just cite this with no seeming resistance to it. Here's one scholar's comment on that. How this statement, the one we just read, 8, 4 through 6, combines the exclusivity of Paul's Jewish tradition with the duality that distinguished early Christian faith. Both God the Father and Jesus are given an exclusivity in the repetition of an emphatic one with each of them. And likewise, there is a universality ascribed to each, along with the distinction between them. All things are from and for God, and all things are through Jesus. God is the author, source, and ultimate purpose of all things, and Jesus is the unique agent of creation and redemption of all things. And remember, this is me, remember that who is the creator? You alone created the heavens and the earth. That is almost throughout the Old Testament. It's in almost every book. You'll see that. So when creation language is associated with Jesus, what side of the line is he on in terms of the creator-creation distinction? 
Continuing with this scholar, in short, we have here a splendid and concise example of how the ancient Jewish confession of the uniqueness of the one God appears to have been adapted and widened, so to speak, to accommodate Jesus as a second distinguishable figure who nevertheless is uniquely linked with the one God and with a corresponding universal role. You might say that's Nicene theology right there. That's what I would say. But the, wait, there's more. Uh, remember, Jesus, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. This one God is invisible, and yet we can see him in the flesh of the man Jesus, the real human flesh of the man Jesus. We continue, 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 2, right? He's an apostle of Jesus, of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Just look at that. The distinction, yes, but the unity as well. And he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. He says, Paul, of whom I am foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. If you go to the next chapter, 2, 3 through 5, it's almost like the apostles agree with Jesus here. Um, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Whoa, Jesus our Savior is God. But there's only one God, yes. And the Word, right, was God. <laughs> I would have jumped to John, sir. All right, back to Paul. <laughs> God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. The, the Virgin Mary, no, whoops, sorry. No, the one, sorry, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. Okay. And of course, all right, now it's John's turn, right? Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice there is not two gods here. There is one God. John believes in the one God, and the Word was with God and was God. God is triune, essentially. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We went from God to His glory. Glory is something intrinsic to God. It's not in matter. It's not in us. No, no, no. We have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It goes on, right? No one has ever seen God. Remember, he's invisible. Paul told us he's invisible. No one has ever seen God, the only one who is God, or the only God, the unique God who is at the Father's side. Wait, the unique God at the Father's side has made him known, has revealed him, exegeted him. Wow. Right. And just remember, and Brendan and I already covered this, look at Mark 2 pretty closely, the healing of the paralytic. Right? Only the one God forgives sins. Pharisees had that right. Who's forgiving sins in that scene? We're not waiting for John to have this theology. There's only one God. Is the Father God? Yes. 
The Son, God, yes. The Holy Spirit, God, yes. Is the Father the Son? No. Is the Son the Father? No. Is the Holy Spirit the Father of the Son? No. There you go. One God, three persons. Uh, if we continue in John, right, just a little bit more of this tour on this first point, the Shema. Chapter 5, right? This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, I'm going to leave that point to the side, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Wait, what? Making himself equal with God. Continuing to chapter 8, right? You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Right? And what, is, what does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. It's that present tense. Clearly invoking, I am the existing one. This is not simply saying he's more than 2,000 years old, by the way. Uh, The use of the tense in this, right, it's speaking of an existence over 2,000 years earlier that's transcendent. There's a sense in which it's transcendent above time, even then. And remember, unless Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you don't have the one God and see Jesus as the one mediator between God and men, right, you will die in your sins. Okay. Number two, God is spirit. Not God is a spirit. It's God is spirit. Let me read a little bit Um, of D.A. Carson on this after we read this passage. Remember, in this scene, right, it's the Samaritan woman, and right before, she brings up a dispute that we see at the time between worship at a temple of Jerusalem or this place in the north, right, Um, that Samaritans uh, believed was the true site of worship. Um, In fact, what does she say? Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, right? But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Okay, so what is the context? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He is taking a side theologically for the Jews of Jerusalem there. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. This is contrasting with these debates you know, right, over geography or, or buildings made with hands, right? God is spirit, right? He's not made of physical matter, does not have a material body, right? He's, his worship is not, you know, necessarily confined to one space. And, and, of course, if you read the Old Testament carefully, they knew that, even the builders of the temple. Read Solomon's prayer, um, the dedicatory prayer. But the, it is not a spirit. It's God is spirit, that is the point. And um, here's some comments from D.A. Carson. Jesus is not suggesting that God is one spirit amongst many, nor simply that he is incorporeal, uh, incorporeal, 
sorry, in the Stoic sense, nor that spirit completely defines his metaphysical properties. In this context, spirit characterizes what God is like in the same way that flesh, location, and corporeality characterize what human beings in their world are like. And he cites a parallel in Isaiah 31, um, right, where it's contrasting God and um, flesh, right? And uh, he's, uh, if I skip ahead a little bit, in the same way, God is spirit means that God is invisible, divine as opposed to human, life-giving, and unknowable to human beings unless he chooses to reveal himself as God is light and God is love, so God is spirit. These are elements in the way God presents himself to human beings in his gracious self-disclosure in his son. And he has chosen to reveal himself. He has uttered his word, his own self-expression, and in that word now become flesh. He may be known as truly as it is possible for human beings to know him. That's great comments. Great comments. Now remember, um, let's go to James. Right? What does he say? What does he say? James 1.17, right? Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Okay, contrasting, from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, or variation due to a shadow of turning. Now notice, he says above, and then he contrasts that, right, from the Father. And then lights, right, stars. Look at Psalm 70, um, let's see, I think it's 74, 16, and 136, 7 through 9. Lights, stars, think of Genesis 1. Lights created even before the sun and the moon. It's... He creates, and yet right when he says he creates, what does James emphasize? That there is no variation in God. There's no change in God. There's no shadow of turning like the sun and moon. And if you keep going, of his own will, notice, not ours, not our agency, no, 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 no. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we meaning humans, right, should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Notice that. I wonder why LDS don't focus on the use of father here. Here's the use of the word father, but relative to the stars. Is that literal? Well, if, yeah, it depends on what you mean by literal, right? But this is what we mean, we Christians mean. We look at every place that uses father. We look at all of what the Bible says about God. And Father clearly here does not mean Father the way you and I have fathers, biologically. Okay, And, and notice, it's his own will that he brought us forth. It says Father, and then it uses womb language, birthing language. It's almost like James knows his Isaiah. Uh, his own will, he brings us forth, womb, by what? The Word. Interesting. The Word of truth. Who is the Word? Who is the truth? That we that we, the, the, the Christians he's encouraging, should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Yes, he is a father of us in a creaturely way. Like, we are his creatures in terms of the potter and the clay. The potter is not inherently like the clay, right? 
This is what we mean. This is a brilliant passage. <laughs> and in fact, uh, and, and James doesn't stop there, right? Elijah is a man with a nature like ours, 517, showing he uses this word nature with humanity in a way that is distinguished from God consistently. Consistently in James. And remember, this is not, this is a, there's a lot of points to this, but one point that I, I find particularly interesting. Why the Sabbath every seventh day? Think about it. You have a year, you have days, you have months. These are all tied to the sun and the moon. What's the Sabbath tied to? God's word. God's word. It's not tied to anything God created. It's tied to God himself through what he revealed to us. And long before the, the law was given to Sinai. So God, even in changing, doesn't change. Here's some, a comment from one of my favorite books, uh, The Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til by Lane Tipton. I love this. Van Til's insistence that God remains immutable in relation to creation is rooted in divine aseity. God is complete in himself. He's absolute. Um, In the defense of the faith, he strongly maintains the independence or aseity of God. Van Til is explicit that by this is meant that God is in no sense correlative to or dependent upon anything beside his own being. God is the source of his own being, or rather the term source cannot be applied to God. God is absolute. He is sufficient unto himself. These are quotes from Van Til. Van Til insists that God, I say, relates to creation without himself changing, so that we speak of the immutability of God. Naturally, God does not and cannot change, since there is nothing besides his own eternal being on which he depends. Not time. Time is one of his creatures. Not space. Space is one of his creations. God's aseity supplies the interior logic for his immutability in relation to creation. God, in his covenantal relation to his people, remains absolute and cannot change precisely because in his new relation of creation, there is nothing besides his own eternal being on which he depends. Uh, This uh, last line of the paragraph, skip ahead a little bit. The triune God is in no sense correlative to or dependent on anything beside his own being in the sovereignly willed new relation to the created world. And of course, citing this uh, verse. Oh, what about Paul? Maybe that's just James. Maybe Paul disagrees. Um, no, he doesn't. Uh, let's look at this. This is a fantastic passage. It's, it's just one of my favorites, honestly. Here we have Acts 14. There's a lot to be said about this passage, especially with some of the, the um, Greek mythology behind it and how this story is um, attacking it. But this is fascinating. So Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra. This is in Acts 14. Um, Paul heals, um, performs a miracle. Really, rather, uh, God performs a miracle through Paul on a man who's crippled from birth. And um, the when the crowd see this, they lift up their voices, um, saying in a native tongue, apparently that Paul and Barnabas are not as familiar with, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Interesting line. Um, and Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Remember, Hermes is the, um, the deliverer of messages, the transmitter of information. 
And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. So, I mean, they immediately go, the gods are here from this miracle. The gods are here, and uh, we got to offer them sacrifice, treat them well. And like I said, there's a Greek story out of Ovid that's, that's um, likely um, in mind. And the priest, uh, let's see here. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. Tore their garments. Mourning. They are mourning at this response by these people. And um, just a, a little side thought here. Remember, this is a, this is a consistent theme. Whenever um, Paul just sees how polytheistic, how pagan, right? How not just non-monotheism, but the, the worship of multiple gods, how just distorted and sinful this is. Um, remember, when he's walking through Athens, right? What does he, what does he say? Right, he it says that Athens, his spirit was provoked within within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Yeah, so this is a theme, right? They see pagan worship, polytheism, and they mourn. They mourn. They say, "Men, why are you doing these things?" So here, here are these people that are <laughs> they think are secretly Zeus and Hermes. They they say, "Men, why are you doing these things?" We are also men. That's why it's key to see this. Men, we are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see that? He's contrasting God the one God, with men. Meaning there's a species distinction, a creator-creation distinction. And immediately when it goes to the living God, singular God, right? And by the way, Jesus is this God who made the heaven and the earth immediately to creation. So, yes, um, this is... (laughs) Clearly, um, the very distinction the King Follett Discourse tries to obliterate. All right, so God is spirit to now, three, God's word. Scripture is God's word, and we should trust God's word. What does um, Jesus have to say about this? I want to uh, pose a question does Jesus ever answer a question by appealing to their experience? This is a real challenge. Find me a single example in any of the four Gospels. If there's an LDS listening, this is aimed at you, but, I mean, anybody. Is there an example where Jesus says, go pray and get your own answer? Uh, rely on personal revelation. No. Or appealing to their experience. Is that true for you or, or something similar? No, no, no. No. Um, in fact, uh, on the contrary, it is written. He'll say things, it is written. Or I say, um, and it's almost as if his words are um, uh, uh, God's. Yeah, yeah, I would say. Um, who, who do you think you are? Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus, who do you think you are? God? You know? <laughs> yeah, I'd say. So here's, here's a passage Mark 7. 
And this, I, I, once again, the focus I, I have on this is the treatment of Scripture. I'm not going to get into all the particularities of, the argu- of what's being argued, but how it's being argued is really the focus. So if you open to Mark 7, and you look at 6 through 8 and 9 through 13, there's a consistent formula here, right? And, it's, he, and he said to them, a scriptural refutation, right? and then a conclusion that contrasts what? The traditions of humans, the, right? And the word of God. Okay, so look at verse 8, the commandment of God versus the traditions of men. Notice, God, men, different. <laughs> right, the flesh became, right, the, the word became flesh, right? But God is not in himself a man. In fact, it's a divine person who took on flesh for us. So, verse 9, what command of God, commandment of God, versus your tradition, your tradition. 13, the word of God, look, he, <laughs> isn't that amazing? It's just, once again, you can pass by it so quickly, right? Making void the word of God. Making void the word of God. And notice, too, it's, it, there's this subtle, this is not me, this is a commentator who I like, even though it, sometimes he's a mixed bag um, as a scholar, I think. But he, he, he makes this point that, notice, formless and void. It's like the second verse, right, um, of the Bible. And it's almost like you didn't make it even past the second verse. You're making void the word of God. You're not even getting past. Okay, you have one God, right? <laughs> and so anyway, there's, I think there's some layered um, meaning here. But you're making void the word of God by what? The tradition which you have passed down. That's what? Of man. Of man. Right? So how do you test tradition? How do you test what men claim come from God by what was written by those we have confidence wrote by the Holy Spirit, right? And, and just notice this pattern, uh, Mark 12, 10. Have you not read this scripture? And then he cites Psalm 118. This is Jesus. And by the way, that would be a weird argument to make if you yourself could not read. I don't know where we got this illiterate Jesus stuff. Have you not read? Or verse 24, same chapter, Mark 12. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Why this is not the reason you're wrong? The reason you're wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. There's um, a great passage in Matthew that I think is so easy to um, overlook where it's just in the detail. And, of course, it's in this kind of detail where there's so much of a difference between LDS and uh, Christians, right? This is in Matthew's version. What does he say? Have you not read what was said to you by God? Have you not read what God spoke? And then he cites Exodus 3, right? Have you not read what God spoke to you? There's the last part, to you, if you're listening, to you. So wait, something said to Moses was written down, preserved, providentially passed down 
to even the, the, the groups that Jesus is debating with, and he can say, and they don't, there's no indication that this is fought, that that scripture is said to you by God. Yes. Yes, that's Jesus' view. And um, news alerts to some of the post-Mormons out there. Christians trust Jesus. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, news flash, right? The way Jesus treats Scripture is our standard. That's what it means to be Christian. So not that mean we don't think, we don't wrestle, we don't ask questions. No, 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 no. Um, and as we may even get to, if I have time, there's a theme in Mark that asks, it's actually a sign of rebellion when the disciples are silent um, at, at one point. It's being around Jesus. It's the proximity for Mark as an evangelist that shows loyalty, uh, not perfectly understanding, but certainly questioning is just like uh, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> and, and I think it's Mark 8. Well, notice Jesus speaks, Peter questions what he said, and then he's treated as the serpent of Genesis 3. I wonder who Mark thought Jesus was, uh, contrary to what a barterman might think. But um, it, it's, you know, no, we, we don't question when Jesus speaks. And when Jesus uses scriptures like this, we take it seriously. It's not, we don't say, well, if it's, it's subject to my experience, it's subject to my temple ritual, it's subject to my feelings, it's not subject to my personal. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't say, go trust your feelings. In fact, we're going to get to what he says about um, your feelings here in a minute. But, you know, he will say things like, you know, um, he'll say, well, did Isaiah prophesy? He'll say, Moses said. He'll say, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, spoken through. And it, this is a divine authority we associate with Scripture. It is. Okay, what about... Um, all of Scripture, though. So this is interesting. Um, Matthew 4, right? We have the temptation scene. We have the temptation scene. And what does Jesus say? Right? So he is being tempted. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right? A kind of recapitulation. Jesus is the new Israel, recapitulating Israel. We're going to see if he stands the test that Israel failed. Right? And after fasting, right, he was hungry. So here he is in a vulnerable position in his humanity. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And what does Jesus say? It is written. And cites what? Cites Deuteronomy 8.3. And then he's going to, again, it is written. Right? It is written. <laughs> He'll cite three passages from Deuteronomy right around, in fact, the Shema and following. You can kind of see this. And notice, too, the devil cites a psalm at him. Right? So the devil imitates Jesus, right? But he pits Scripture against all of Scripture. And that's, that's why it's so key to see this line. Man shall not live by bread alone. This is Jesus saying, right, it is written answering the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And by the way, that connection between word and bread, I think, is significant. So, you know, it's, it's just, this is so... <laughs> You know, the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Him only, the Lord your God, Lord God, right? 
This is contrary, of course, to any sort of thesis that would pit Deuteronomy against some primitive Israelite religion that's more authentic. Um, yep, that's, that's said for you, uh, LDS apologists out there. Now, um, interestingly enough, there's even a canonical point, and I'm trying to speed this point up just a little bit, but notice in um, the phrase, right, and there's, there's a version in Matthew and in Luke, right, where Jesus says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And what's interesting is that the, Abel was the first murdered person in the Bible, and Zechariah, we think, is the one mentioned in Second Chronicles 24. And we think Second Chronicles was probably the end of the Hebrew Bible, the last book of the Hebrew Bible at the time of Jesus. So it's like saying Genesis to Revelation today. It would be saying you know um, Genesis to Second Chronicles. And, and you'll notice that, too, the ending is really ends with the proclamation of Cyrus to go back, and the, of course the idea is, don't mess it up this time. How about that John 10 passage that some LDS like to use when it comes to the plural gods? I'm not going to focus on that right now. What does Jesus say right in the middle that should show, hey, this part's pretty clear. Do LDS believe this? Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. Interesting. That's Jesus, Gen 10.35. What about um, Luke 24? This one would be, you know, I think is significant for a number of reasons. You'd think the resurrected Christ, that would be quite the, you know, the time that uh, would be very fitting to just rely on your experience. Here you are, this man was dead and is now alive in the same body. I mean, that's... Yeah, uh, maybe that's not the time to open up the scriptures. No, no, no. What does Jesus do? What does he? What does Jesus do on the road to Emmaus? Right. You have Cleopas, his companion. This is a post-resurrection appearance. What does Jesus say at, at later on? Now, please read the whole thing um, if you'd like. But what does Jesus say to them when they don't see? Right. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. What? All that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Notice, it's like, look at it. The five books of Moses, the rest of the Bible. <laughs> all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus told us what the Bible's about. Him. Not us, not our lives, not our plans, not our horoscopes. <laughs> Him. Him. And notice, if you keep going, what does he say? What does he say? In fact, um, very interesting scene, sacramental scene, and then... He said, uh, they say, they said to each other, sorry, verse 32, there it is. Did not our hearts burn within us? Oh, there's the burning of the bosom, right? There's the burning of the bosom, LDSism right there. No, 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 no. While he, he talked to us on the road, right? While he opened to us the scriptures. Here's God incarnate, resurrected Lord. And he gives, he emphasizes the scriptures properly understood. 
So the burning of the bosom was not isolated. It's not pitting experience and spirit apart from the word. No, 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 no. In fact, it's burning while he opened the scriptures. While he opened the scriptures. Okay. And so this, uh, <laughs> this is God showing us what to rely on in this life. Now, what about um, James? Well, it's just interesting. He talks about the royal law according to the scripture, the scripture, and then he cites Leviticus 19. In fact, Leviticus 19 is a huge chapter for James. In fact, if you go ahead to chapter 4, verse 11, James talks of the law, and he's probably referring to Leviticus 19. Um, and, and, of course, this is one that... Um, if you look at Bruce R. McConkie's comment, he's like, yeah, that's why you have to you know, obey perfectly. But <laughs> it's amazing. Um, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. That's James. What's interesting is underneath that in 412, right, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. <laughs> and both parts need to be emphasized. What's interesting is James is so early, and yet it has tons of echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's a great evidence for uh, Jesus' sayings being memorized and, and being the foundation of the apostolic witness. And there is a little chart at in the ESV Study Bible that you, you can see, consult if you're interested in this, it's on in, in my copy, 2397, page 2397. And they show a bunch where there's echoes, maybe even quotations of Jesus in James without him, of course, putting citations there. And yet, what does he say? There's only one lawgiver. If he know, what is, who is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Why a mountain giving a sermon? It's almost mosaic, right? Except surpassing it. And yet James will say there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save, Jesus is able to save, and to destroy. And as we're going to get, LDS don't have a really a theology for either of those. He doesn't save, and he can't destroy either. You know? so, so anyway, James has a very high view of Scripture and the law. Uh, that's key to understand. What about Paul? Maybe Paul, right? He pits, he pits gospel against law, right, all the time. Well, maybe contrast, of course, or grace and law or whatever. But, but read him a little carefully. What does is, what is Paul say in Romans 1.1? Set apart for the gospel of God, which, of course, it's also gospel about Jesus because he is God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Wow, right there, right at the beginning. What does Paul say? The gospel's not fundamentally new, but in a sense, fundamentally old, right? He, he promised, you could almost say, the Holy Spirit's baked by the prophets. You could almost say that. Uh, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 20. What does even the hypocritical Jew have? Having in the law what? The embodiment of knowledge and truth. No, not rooted in your experience, not rooted in the mysteries, not rooted in hermeticism, not rooted in the King Follow discourse. No, what is it? In the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In fact, he goes on to say, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. 
much in every way. And in fact, in chapter 7, what does Paul say? We know that the law is spiritual. That's interesting. The law is spiritual. Indeed, in verse 16, the law is good. So it's almost like James and Paul have a high view of the Old Testament, just as Jesus did and just as Jesus modeled. And my question is, can any LDS, when their entire system is built on a Moroni promise that they are starting to water down on this year in the Book of Mormon manual, <laughs> by promise, they used to mean a guarantee, guarantee that you're going to fill this, and then that means everything's true, right? The polygamy, all of it. Um, <laughs> we don't practice polygamy. Yes, you do. Nelson sealed to more than one woman. Oaks is sealed to more than one woman. Um, are, are they married or no? Um, Yes, I think in your system that is yes. But hey, you, you had a feeling about the Book of Mormon, probably not even reading the whole thing, just a few verses. So that must mean what? And that is not the Christian model. And to be have the Christian model truly, to truly be Christian, you cannot speak and use and abuse Scripture the way the LDS do. And I say that with as much love and charity as I can muster. Okay. How about number four, Christ as temple? And of course, this is a layered thing. So what I want to go through is, in, in a condensed way, of course, Christ as temple, the heavenly temple, in a sense in which the church is temple. And yet, I want, hopefully I can show, in the teachings of Jesus and his apostles, none of them or LDS temple theology. None of them. In fact, none of them would allow even the building of buildings called temples made, you know, made with hands. That's the phrase. That's the phrase. First, Jesus prophesies the end of the temple made with hands. So if you look at Mark 13, this is fascinating. Um, in Mark 13, 1 through 2, what does he say? Do you see these great buildings? Do you see these great buildings? <laughs> so he, he's pointing out, and notice, that this, is a, this is a building, right, that was built by God's people. I mean, right? I mean, it's, you could hardly say it's evil, right? God commanded it. Some, so much of the Levitical law is tied to worship there, right? And yet, what does he contrast it with? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He prophesies. Jesus prophesies. And interestingly enough, even Bart Ehrman is willing to grant, even as skeptic as he, that Jesus did in fact prophesy the destruction of the temple and was right about it. Now notice, if especially some of this will be a subtlety in Mark. I, I, uh, me and my brother did a Mark study. Um, and, you know, when you go in depth in, in an evangelist, you catch on to the subtleties of his style. And this is, this is some of that, where that wording of departure, because he never goes back. This is when Jesus leaves and doesn't go back in the Gospel of Mark. It's meant to be an act of judgment on the temple, which says a lot about what Mark, who supposedly has the lowest Christology, not true, um, says about Jesus. This is comparable to Ezekiel 10, when the Lord departs from the temple. And what happens to the first, what happened to the first temple? This is part of the prophecy. This is part of the power of this text. And that term, a stone upon a stone, that's used in Haggai in the Old Testament to describe the rebuilding of the first temple. 
So wait, Jesus just cited Haggai and expects his formed followers to recognize this. And so the idea is, just as the first temple was built up stone by stone, right? Unlike the first, it will remain in ruins. It's a reversal. Mark loves to do this apocalyptic reversal. So notice, it's not meant to be rebuilt. <laughs> that's, that's part of the nuance of this. Also, it, this is something, too, that we see with Jesus's, you know early followers, right? Look at Stephen in Acts 7. And, um, of course, it's false witnesses in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. But what do they say? This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. We have heard him say that this Jesus will destroy this place. Interesting. And, and what's, what's funny, and this often happens in the New Testament, right? There is some, a, a little bit of truth to the false witness, or sometimes it's who says it, right? The demons have the right Christology, even when the Peter can't seem to figure it out at that time. And um, here, it's the false witnesses that are human, and yet there is some truth to this, right? If you look at uh, Stephen's um, sermon, right, his last words, so to speak, um, he says, it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He's making a broader point, right, about the nature of God. And, of course, if you look at it as a whole, in the flow of redemption history, about this moment, have, with the Messiah having come, right, been crucified, died, buried, raised on the third day, and ascended into heaven and seated, um, as the right hand, as the glory of God, right, in the same speech, right? This is key. What about Paul? I mean, later in Acts, in Acts 17, what do you say? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Who's, who's God and who's Lord <laughs> for Paul? We already saw that. Does not live in what? Temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Very different than, oh, we have these ordinances where we're going to save our dead, but we need these buildings made with hands, with proper authority, right? Treated in the sacred way. We need the sacred. No, no, no. Look at Exodus 3. What made that place sacred in which he says, Moses, take off your shoes? God, it's not like that. It just... Moses was lucky and happened to find the one sacred mountain in the region. God made it sacred. God's presence is what makes something sacred. Right? Not the place you make sacred and then you hope God comes. And, and this is just, it's, it's, it's the very mentality that Jesus and the apostles are aiming at. Right? Aiming at. Um, that is embodied in an LDS temple theology. So it's, what's interesting is we see this theme, of course, and we've gone there, I think, for every single one, or at least we could have. I, I haven't hit everything I've written here, written down here. What was that? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the Word pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us. We're, and I'm assuming you understand, um, you listener, regardless of your background, the, the connection between uh, creation, tabernacle, temple. But this line is just so incredible. 
He pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us. The word took on flesh, tabernacled. This is clearly an illusion, though in a more extreme way, a more realized way to God's dwelling among the Israelites in Exodus 25, 33, etc. Here's a commentator I really like. The word, God's very self-expression, who was both with God and who was God, became flesh. He donned our humanity, save only our sin. God chose to make himself known, finally and ultimately, in a real historical man. When the word became flesh, God became man. And if the whole point of the temple is to be a place where God and, and, and men mingle, even if it's just one day a year in a prescribed, prescribed way, what do you do with Jesus, who is God? He's the temple. It's in, once again we see this uh, continue. Um, I like T.A. Uh, Carson's comment as he continues because it goes right from that to we have seen his glory, right? Temple glory, Christ glory. In post-biblical Hebrew, the Shekinah glory was nothing less than the visible manifestation of God. By alluding to such themes, John may be telling his readers that God manifested Himself most clearly. When the Word became flesh, the incarnate Word is the true Shekinah, the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God amongst human beings, for this Word became a man, right? And, and so just as tabernacle and temple would be associated with God's glory, I mean, look at in temple context, Psalm 29.9, right? They, they yell glory, right? Um, and of course, in Isaiah 42, I will not give my glory to anyone else. So God shares his glory with no one, and yet... Christ's glory is a glory he shares with the Father before creation itself, 17.5 and 24. What does that say about Jesus? No wonder, as I'm, gonna, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, jumping the gun, that it, the epistle to the Hebrews teaches that the veil of the temple is the flesh of Christ. It's one of the teachings. Now, let's get to Jesus in particular. I'm going to choose, uh, though it is interesting to see um, Mark 14 and 15 hint at such a teaching that we actually find in John showing uh, there's not as much of a distinction between Mark and John as some like to say. What does it teach in John 2, right? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, right? And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus, right, he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. His body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed what? The scripture. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Notice there's, these are all interweaving. These are all overlapping. It's like I, I go to an example for one, and you're going to see another one of these ten points right there. They believed the scripture. And the word that Jesus had spoken. That and, right? Because what Jesus said is also Scripture. Because he is God. And Scripture is God's word. But the main point for the sake of this point is, what in LDS theology does that mean? The temple of his body. This is in distinction with everyone else. This is not a making a broad point about everybody that dies then is resurrected. Right? We're going to get to a little bit of Paul's um, point 
here later on, but th- this is the context in which that point is made. If you don't get this point, then whatever else you want to say about the word of wisdom and treating your body like a temple, no, 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 no. that does not flow from this theology. That's, that's an ad hoc theology that can't make sense of all of the biblical data on the point. And, and uh, just while we're at it, I highly recommend G.K. Beale, the scholar G.K. Beale. He has a number of books on temple theology as Christians would understand it. Now, here's a commentator um, on the temple of his body, right, to this point. The Father and the incarnate Son enjoy mutual indwelling. He cites uh, 14, 10 through 11 in John. Therefore, it is the human body of Jesus that uniquely manifests the Father and becomes the focal point of the manifestation of God to man. Remember what Paul says in Colossians, this is me. He's the image of the invisible God. God is in is invisible. <laughs> he's, he's not a thing that can be captured with the human eye. Like, I, 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 and once again, LDS are not raised with any sense of transcendence. They don't have a God. <laughs> they have three persons. They have three humans they call God that they think, yeah, it's invisible in the sense that it's far away within the cosmos, within this imminent frame that is the world. It, no, no, that's not what we mean. When we say God, what we mean is at least transcendence, at least creator, creation distinction, creator side of the line. And within that, that's why the word becoming flesh, that's, in, that's astounding. It, it is the ultimate miracle. It's the ultimate miracle. How could, how could the God who created everything, out of nothing and in nothing, be in the womb of Mary for nine months? I don't have a rational explanation for that. That's the point. God, if, if I can comprehend it, it's not God. I'm pretty sure that was Augustine. If not, it should have been. <laughs> Continue on with this commentary. So Jesus, his human body, becomes the focal point of the manifestation of God to man, the living abode of God on earth, the fulfillment of all the temple meant, and the center of all true worship over against all claims of holy space, John 4, because God is spirit. In this temple, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. See the sacrificial, how it would just flow. If you know who Jesus is, you know who God is, and therefore you know who Jesus is, and you see him on the cross. His temple, the true temple, the flesh of Jesus being the veil, right? His body being the temple. That's the center of true worship. And in this temple, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. Within three days of death and burial, Jesus Christ, the true temple, would rise from the dead. Beautiful. Now, it, and once again, we're just rehashing it, right? In John 4, right, on a dispute over the correct place of the temple, as we've already seen, what does he say? Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Notice, the Father's seeking, we're not seeking him. He's, he's seeking us. Uh, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's not saying it's not going to be on this mountain or this mountain. We're waiting for Salt Lake City. Right? We're waiting for Nauvoo. No, no, no. It's, it's a new it's a new historic, redemptive historical era. With Jesus, something changed. There's an overlap, though, right? 
There's an already, but not yet. It's not yet completed. We're waiting for our bridegroom to come. But this is the context of true biblical theology. And, and this is something interesting I don't have time to get into because I'm already go, going on a little longer than I, I thought. But there's a great uh, dissertation I'll put in the show notes that I think shows that in John, both in the Gospel of John and in Revelation, of course, uh, we, who we believe um, was the same author, Jesus is the eschatological temple. So, you know, we don't look to Ezekiel 40 through 48, and um, at least I, I, I think more informing Christians don't, uh, 40 and 48, and think of a future temple in Israel. No, 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 no. That temple, that temple is Jesus. He is the eschatological temple. And even in that, right, he, he is the place where heaven and earth unite. And yet he's also pointing toward this new heavenly temple that we'll get to uh, right now. So look at how Hebrews uses this. This is interesting. Hebrews 8.2, right? Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest of course, Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. And notice the contrast again. This heavenly temple, it's not built by humans, but it is a created place. God created the heavens and the earth. It's not like the heavens are uncreated, the earth is created. God created it all. And look at Colossians 1, you'll see that very clearly um, as well. Paul is almost exegeting that for us. But it, no, 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 but this temple, this temple is made by the Lord. Interesting. So it's a true tent, true tabernacle. And if that's where the sacrifice, right, is, that, I mean, this is part of our hope in Hebrews. Hebrews is a brilliant text. In chapter 9-11, once again, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the heavenly tent, the heavenly tabernacle, what does it say? Not made with hands. Not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I'll skip the soteriological, the, the salvation point that clearly LDS don't agree with um, for now. We'll come back to that. In chapter 10, I love this. I already mentioned it, but just because I love this verse. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, that John also shows, this is me, John also shows he's not only the destination, he is the way. He is the way. Uh, listen to our very first, um, let's see, I think it was Four Things in Recap or something last year, and I, and I went in a little bit into that in John 1. But he opened, right, that's new and living way that he opened for us through the veil, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. When we see Christ suffering on the cross, we see God suffering for his people. And if you, if you truly have a God, that's astounding. It's astounding. In Christ's language. Now, this is also, notice, if, 
if he is the temple and we are in Christ, this is why it can just flow for someone like Paul, say, where we are reconciled to God in Christ and him alone, trusting in his work, resting in his promise, in him. In him. And, and Paul does this a lot, right? In Christ. And he'll even, uh, you know, present yourselves as living sacrifices, things like this. The temple language makes sense because if you're in him, right, you're in the new ark, so to speak, right? That's That's where... You are safe from the judgment to come, and it, it is coming. But um, just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. That's why we emphasize in Christ's language. Um, there's a temple component to that. It's not the only thing, but it is part of it, I think. And what about Peter? Uh, Peter, 1 Peter 2.5, as you come to him, a living stone. So Christ, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is the context in which the church members, the believers, right, are God's temple, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3. And um, I'll leave it at that. There's, of course, more for that. But just the last point I must fit in on this point before we move on to the next is, once again, to recap, Christ is temple. He takes us to a heavenly temple. He's the way. He prepared the place. But he's also the destination. Thus, in him, right, we are citizens of heaven, so to speak. But And in that place is a temple not made with hands. And, of course, with the virgin birth, his flesh is not made uh, with hands, at least in the same way, either. So this, all of this culminates. This is why we rejoice in Revelation 21, where it says this, in the heavenly city, right? The city of God, the new Jerusalem. I saw no temple in this city, right? I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God, there's the glory. Glory of God gives it light, and its light is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written, and do we write ourselves into that? No. Written in the Lamb's Book of Life, his book. And um, I think it was the last Judgment episode last year, if you want to see how LDS deal with that passage. Uh, clearly, um, in fact, as near opposite of that point as could be contrived in a group that's claiming uh, to be Christian. All right, five. Who is man and who is Christ's family? This one, there's so, I have so much here. Um, let's start with this. Mark 7. Let's go back to Mark 7. And in this, this point, I think, is one that is not appreciated enough. The apostles did such a good job providing um, 
the, the correct interpretation of the context of the gospel and the cross and all that, that sometimes we can skip in, mentally where even the bad news is clearly taught by Jesus. The bad news that's the context for the good news, who is Christ, right, and what he will accomplish for his people. So this is interesting. This is at the end of this section, and he's going to tell, Jesus is going to tell us what defiles a man. Okay? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Right? And, and of course, in the context of clean purity, impurity, right? A very Levitical debate that can be foreign to, to some of our minds, especially in modern, uh, rich America, whatever. But, um, Right, and, and of course, he's going to cut through some of the debate by going to the core of the problem of only focusing on these externals apart from the real problem. And the real problem is not only a rule thing, but it's a heart thing. For Jesus, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. <laughs> this is the opposite of the real you culture, you know, the culture of self-esteem today that you know teaches children to deceive themselves about how great they are, everything or whatever. No, 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 no. This is, this is uh, not cute stuff. And this is Jesus, right out of the mouth of Jesus. What, in Je- what did Jesus just teach us? The real source of defilement comes from our hearts, comes from our core being. <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is um, don't pass this up. If that stuff's the symptom, what's the problem? We need a new heart. Think Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right? This is... Um, this is a commentary I like. In any case, Mark's catalog of human offenses in, is incorporated into a truly hellish picture in which the interior of the human being is depicted as a Pandora's box, a cave of malignancy out of which hordes of demon-like evils emanate. Even this catalog of offenses, however, has a certain structure to it. And he goes into this structure. It's very, very interesting. And, of course, a lot of them are following uh, Old Testament patterns, even just the Ten Commandments, you can see it. This is interesting. And this, this point, I think, is really key. The disciples, he's not even just saying that to, to everyone else, right? He, he actually, if you read it, he, um, he calls the people to him again. These are people that are listening to him, and he's making sure you see it. He's not just saying this about those Pharisees out there. No, no, no. The disciples, in any event, do not stand apart from the group of humans whose hearts pour forth evil into the world. The problems that are analyzed in our passage are general human ones that cut across any artificial division between church and world. It is not insignificant, then, that the very last word in our passage is anthropos, a person, human being, which, as we have seen, is a key throughout chapter 7. This word also occurs, and he goes into that. Anthropos then turns up five times in our short passage and puts in an extraordinary 11 appearances in the chapter. The basic problem Christians should be concerned about 
Mark seems to be saying through this striking pileup is not how, and I would say Jesus there, but you know, the Mark the Evangelist is, is documenting this with the authority of Peter, by the way, is not how or what one should eat, but the internal corruption of the anthropos, of, of the human. It is this malignancy that chokes the life out of tradition, turns it into an enemy of God, contorts it into a way of excusing injustice, and blinds those afflicted by it to their own culpability for the evils that trouble the world. I like that. I like that. And you could almost say, hey, this, uh, this of course, even flows from the Psalms, right? Psalm 51 one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're not sinners just because we sin, right? We sin because we're sinners. And um, once again, uh, don't pass this up. This is key because LDS, and if you're listening, you know what I'm saying is true. They trust their hearts. In fact, they trust their hearts more than Scripture. They trust their experience. They trust whatever. Whatever they interpret as fruit for their heart and how good life is, whatever, whatever it is, um, how they feel when they listen to Nelson, they trust that and how it tickles their heart. They have itching ears for that kind of thing. But once again, they say they love Jesus. Do they love this? If you love Jesus, you should listen to what he says. And that goes for every one of these points. And I have a little bit on that at the end. Of course, the 10th point being sincerity is not enough. I, I, um, and I, I say this with care, and I have specific people in mind. Um, I'm not questioning your sincerity, but I am questioning the sanity of it. To say how much you love Jesus because of feelings, and yet every, every single one of these points on its own should be enough to challenge what that even means. Is it the real Jesus then? Or yeah, what if if you love Jesus, you should hear what he says. And here he talks about the real source of defilement and evil in the world is the human heart. Well, is that the only place? No. Uh, even in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 7 11. If you then who are evil, let's look at the Luke version. For everyone who asks and receives, Luke eleven thirteen. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you? Okay. If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, if you then are who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father, who is not that, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Interesting. Interesting. Um, here's one that I, I love going to um, in conversations because it gets rid of the hippie Jesus pretty quickly. This is Luke 13. This is the collective component I'm looking for, right? Um, you who are evil, okay, maybe they can find some way. Well, you know, he happened to mean to be talking to those people, not us people. Um, clearly, that's not the case. Sermon on the Mount seems to be for his uh, people, <laughs> and he says the same thing. Um, but, okay, how about this? How about this? Repent or perish. Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Um, we don't really know much about this incident other than here, but apparently there was some violent incident dealing with the Roman authorities um, and the temple. 
And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? When something bad happens to a certain group or certain area or whatever, is it because they are worse sinners than others? Jesus says, no. No, I tell you, Jesus, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Whoa. So a bad thing happens to these people. And what's the lesson Jesus wants us to take away from it? Repent, or you will likewise perish. Meaning that bad thing is a sign of a final judgment to come, from which there will not be any escape for those who don't repent. He continues, Or those 18 on whom the tower at Siloam, right? It's probably a part of the wall of Jerusalem near the pool there, but... Apparently, there was this Siloam Tower that fell and killed people. Okay, so it killed 18 people. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus, once again, doubles down. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What are we supposed to take away from the bad thing that happened here? This tragedy, that tragedy? Repent. Because a Complete judgment is coming. Whoa. What LDS will uh, bear their testimony about that passage? The fact that that probably inspired a laugh or two makes the point. Makes the point. Now, um, keep in mind, this is, this is the, it's this that we see the comments from the apostles just flowing, right? Just flowing. Uh, how about in uh, John? Right, go back to this powerful passage in the Gospel of John, this opening section. What does it say about humanity? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, so those who receive him believe on his name, he gave the right. No, notice, this is not some natural right because we're human or natural right because we're, you know, there's natural laws that even God is accountable. No, no, no. He gives this right to become the children of God to those who believe and trust in him and him alone, right? He gives, quote, he gave the right to become children of God, meaning you're not normally that. We are not all children of God. I, there, there is a, a one little sense in which that's true in the sense that we were all created by God, potter in the clay, right? And we are all in the image and likeness of God, right? There is a fatherness there, sure. Not a literal fatherness. And there is definitely a heightened meaning for those who believe. This is why it says that he gave the right to become the children of God who were born Notice this, born naturally because we all are. No, 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 we're born, not of blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Notice, not because not you will it either when you hit the age of accountability or whatever, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice the contrast, not the will of humanity, but of God, because God is not a man. It could not be more clear nor the will of man, but of God. 
Those who are gifted with faith in Christ alone, the image of the invisible God, become the children of God, meaning they were not naturally. And this same John, right, he, he, he even says, um, right, that um, in speaking about the children of God, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, right? And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Born language, once again. And of course, this is not born language that could include everybody, right? So it's <laughs> this is First uh, John 5 is what I'm referring to. Here's one from Paul, right? In Ephesians, Ephesians 2. Listen to this with this in mind. Who, who, are, are, who are humanity? And how do we understand um, the difference in a children's status of believers? Um, chapter 2 of Ephesians. And you were dead. Wait, injured? No. Um, limited? Because we have to have a fall to have these bodies to have opportunity to progress? No, no, no. We're dead. In trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the course of nature, right? Just a powerful statement. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, there's son language, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What? By nature, children of wrath. That's what we once were. This is, of course, written uh, to believers, right? We were once, by nature, children of wrath, God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. There it is. Like the rest of mankind, but God. And if you're a Christian out there, hallelujah, but God, being rich in what? Providing a path and teaching us principles by which we can exalt ourselves? No, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That's grace. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Messiah Jesus. Amen. Okay. For by so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's why he wants to. He's a king who loves to give good gifts, right? His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, in Him, the temple, the real temple. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, not your own doing. He just said we're saved through faith, not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that, notice, result, it doesn't mean works don't accompany it. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast, no one, for we are his workmanship. Notice that. Now, so we were children of wrath, right? And now we're made alive with Christ, and we are his workmanship, creation language, created in Christ Jesus for, unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just a powerful text. And of course, this, this flow, it almost sounds like Paul believes the same thing Jesus does on who we are and the source of the problem. Right? Now, this last one point I want to make, well, I guess there's two points, but who is the family of Christ? 
And I just think that this is really hard to deal with if you're LDS, and this is coming right out of the mouth of Jesus. In Mark 3, um, we have it explicitly stated who it is. So um, there's some subtleties to Mark here that I'm, I'm going to try to point out a little bit on one point. Um, but, of course, do your own reading, do your own thinking, all of you. Um, Mark 3, 31 through 35, and I'm, I have in mind already Mark 6, 1 through 6, where it says a prophet is not without, right, uh, without honor, right? Let's see. Let me just read it. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household, in his own household. So there, he, Mark hammers this point home on family relations. The others do as well in a different way. But this is, this is key, documenting Jesus here. And his mother, notice, Jesus' mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. They're, they're intervening. This is an intervention, right? This is craziness. There's shame coming on the family. And a crowd was sitting around him. Okay, they're sitting around him. And they said to him, and Mark loves that, around. If you're around Jesus, right, you're going to be okay. That's if you're outside, if you're away, Mark does a lot with that. Um, and, and the people around him don't always get it. Um, so, in fact, sometimes the people away don't, don't ask questions because they've already made up their mind. And this is just very, yeah, it's very Markin. Uh, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside, right? Um, and sometimes, some manuscripts add your sisters, right? The point is your siblings, are outside, yes, he has siblings, are outside seeking you. And what does Jesus say? Who are my mother and my brothers? Mary's in the scene. <laughs> and, and that says a lot, right? This, I'm not, this is not anti-Mary. and it's Mary is on the church side of the line, needing to be saved, as she herself says in Luke 1. No, this is... Just to really hammer home the point, right? Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, once again, around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, exclamation point. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And I, I do think there's a sense in the will of God is this theme in Mark that has to do with there's a double meaning sometimes in how he uses it. And it has to deal with being around him and listening to what he has to teach. Um, there's a commentator who catches this, I think, is really um, in a really interesting way. Let's see here. Um, on the will of God, it could be either objective, that which God wishes to be done, right? Or subjective, God's own action of willing and desiring, right? The usage with to do supports the objective one, that this is something God wishes to be done, right? But in view of the strong emphasis on predestination in the immediately following passage, chapter 4, a subjective nuance cannot be totally excluded. I love this line. Those who do God's will do so through God's own initiative. There you go. That's beautiful. And um, But if... <laughs> Here, though, he's redefining the family, right, 
as those around him. This is really key in Mark, and you see the flow of the gospel, right? You see what the scribes from Jerusalem just determined about him. They came and they brought their verdict in verse 22. So this is a redefining, so to speak, of Israel, so to speak. I know there's going to be some differences out there on what that means, but there's a redefining, right, of the Israel of God in the Galatians 5 sense. I think it's Galatians 5. Around, in a Christological way, around the man Jesus. And this is key. This is not just someone who from afar says they love him because they have feelings. No, are you around him and listening to what he says? That's the will of God in this. And of course, as we find out in Mark, in the parables, God gives the ears to hear. God gives the ears to hear, even when it comes to hard, hard teachings. Okay, in Matthew 10, 34-39, this is a powerful passage that I think those who believe the gospel is eternal families or, or whatever, um, this is key to realize about Jesus' teaching, right? He says, verse 34 through 39, do not think, this is Jesus, this is the Lord of glory speaking, hear him, do not think that I have come to bring peace to this earth, to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake uh, will find it. We There's um, a similar teaching in that Luke documents here um, that I also want to read, just to emphasize the point, because it's so key. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. Now, this is a, absolutely an issue of relative priority, right? It's, this is not Jesus saying family enmity is a virtue in itself, right? Nor is it um, the universal experience uh, that we see with the disciples. It's a matter of priority, right? It's loyalty to Jesus and his mission. That's first. And if the result of that is family ties are strained or breaking, so be it. That, that does not mean it would not be better if all the families submitted to Christ, right? But that's submitting to Christ, not just any church that claims him. What he teaches, what he teaches, he's the Lord. He tells us, we shut up, we listen. When Jesus speaks, that's the Lord of glory speaking. He tells us how things are. We don't tell him how we feel about him based on things that have nothing to do with what he taught. And how... If you define gospel as families forever, do you deal with this? Do you deal with this? There are many LDS that would compromise loyalty to what Jesus says about, I don't know, marriage, sexuality, a lot of things. Wealth is one that I didn't make the list, though maybe it should have given how LDS are with business and wealth. But Jesus has a lot to say and warnings about that. 
No, no. Jesus defines this for us, right? And so this is, this is, um, it's so key. It's so key. And I just wish, I wish more LDS would just let the scriptures speak and not let their traditions cloud, not let their, their inculcated hatred of God's word. And that's what it is. If you distort, if you can't let it just speak and let it be what it is, right? To me, that's almost more dangerous than someone who can say, recognize what it is and yet disagrees with it um, for other rebellious reasons. Okay. Now, one last thing on this point of what family is and what who we are, what humanity is, is this, and we see it in Mark 2, 18 through 20, and John 3, 29, where, where John the Baptist says that he's the friend of the bridegroom, right? Um, keep in mind the Old Testament, and we have this in places where Israel is the bride and God is the bridegroom, and yet Jesus is the bridegroom of this new eschatological Israel, this new church, so, so to speak. And um, this marriage language, and notice, this is a monogamous marriage. One God, one Lord, one church uh, are all in the creed, for example, the Nicene Creed. And notice uh, even the, the um, beautiful teaching in, in John 14.3 um, about him going to prepare a place for for us. This is also this same thing. So what would happen is you would become engaged, right, in this culture. You'd become engaged, and you might take a year to go prepare, get a house ready, right? Because you live with your parents until maybe she'll move in with you and your parents. But if you're a little more able to be on your own, um, you go and prepare your own place for a family, and then you go back, and then you have a wedding feast where the bridegroom comes and then takes the bride to the place he prepared. That is behind this. Christ is the bridegroom, right? The church is a bride. This is not a polygamist thing. This is a monogamous thing. It's, and, and so that's also something to keep in mind, is that we were once children of wrath, but as we believe and rely on Christ, as we believe and rely on on Christ, right? He gives us the right to become children of God as part of a church, right? As his bride, looking forward to the return of the bridegroom. And it's in this context where the true family are those around Jesus, and that nothing, no loyalty should interfere with one wholehearted Shema-like devotion to the one God in Christ.